the Hollywood Trust podcast testimony series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Becker. Hello and welcome once again to the Hollywell podcast series and today's interviewee is the one and only Jonathan Burgess, writer, producer, director, who I've worked closely with over the last half a dozen years. Whenever I was a teenager, going back into the early 80s, I used to have a UVF scarf up on the headboard above my bed in the Victoria Road. Biggest house in the town. My father built the biggest house in the town at the time. The reason we knew that because it, it was the biggest rate spell in the town. This is you as a teenager? This is me as a teenager, and I suppose really that's an originating point for me. There was a whole lot of stuff that brought me to that point, and basically it's been the journey from that point since, because I'm quite shocked and annoyed and horrified at myself that I did that, but then at the same time, I think that most young men in Northern Ireland spurred of rebellion and defiance and immortality and the desire to kind of go out and bleed for a cause when they're in their teenage years and a lot of people get over themselves and some people don't and the people that didn't in Northern Ireland are probably the ones that went to jail. What would have motivated you specifically to have in your bedroom as a teenager UVF scarf? Well, basically what you had, I mean, the situation with the Protestants in the West Bank, I mean, my father saw a soldier shot at our front door when we lived in, at the bend on Abercorn Road whenever I was three weeks old. I was born two weeks after Bloody Sunday. I was due to be born on Bloody Sunday and held on for a fortnight, obviously waiting for a, a quieter period to, to appear. And we moved to May Street. Before I was 18 months old, the front of our house was blown out. Me and my mother were nearly killed. Survived through luck. Uh, whenever a car bomb went off the foot of the street. We moved then out to Dunwood Park, out beside the golf club. Norman Duddy was shot. He moved out to Dunwood Park as well. He was shot. Coming from church two weeks after he moved into Dunwood Park, he moved out of Belmont because of the security risk, ironically. The, the, these, these things sort of happened when, when I was, you know, later on, 10, 11, 12, 13 years of age. Did you know Norman's family? I did. They moved on to be, they, they stayed in there. I mean, they lived a few houses down from us and you know, I played for. I, I didn't know Norman Doddy himself. I saw him once because we, we called at the front door to ask the two boys if they wanted to come out to play. Whenever they moved into the house, and I remember seeing him standing at, in, at the back, just sort of the, the door opening, he was kind of standing there. And that was the only time I ever saw him. New Mrs. Doddy, Mark, David played in their houses. I know someone who's in that congregation who was in the choir with him. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when you would have heard about that? Or do you remember your own reactions? To I don't. I mean, we would have been at church as well because we were at church every Sunday. We Carlisle Road. Carlisle Road Presbyterian. Yeah, yeah. So I can't remember how that news would have come through. I don't remember any of the feeling really bad or feeling really. I don't. I don't. I kind of don't do those emotions. Although a lot of people would consider me to be highly strong, but I, I just don't do. There's things you remember. I mean, whenever Tom Cook was shot, the provost coming out of the so golf Jerry, club. Yeah. So Jerry Golf Club. We lived with a piece of we we lived quite close to that, and I remember that night, I was standing out at the back door. I was the morning father going out. I was smoking a cigarette, illicitly smoking a cigarette, which I did from the age of about twelve, all the time. Hearing people running through the undergrowth behind our house, the shooters, possibly, 
because that would have been the easy way to get back to where they were going to. They said they went back to Brahen and the best way to do it was to kind of cross the woodland. And our house was on that woodland. That would have been a, a natural kind of path for, for, for people to go if they knew it. Which meant that I had to know that because we knew that woodland as kids. But, you know, the, the paths were, you know, the, so obviously these people probably done dry run and dry run and dry run and we had never seen them. It's kind of, I mean, everybody's kind of got those kind of trauma tales. I mean, I didn't lose anybody close to me. That My, my friends, three sets of brothers lost their father. The Cook, uh, the Cook brothers lost Cook, their father? Alfred's and, and Duddies. Mm. Alfred is, is it James Alfred, Jim Alfred, John Alfred? John. Was killed in Nelson Drive. That's right, he was shot. Like and you were at school with those? We were at school, I was at school with those. Uh, Andrew and David Cook, I was close to because they lived out our way. You know, Andrew Cook, because he was C and I was B, whenever we went out of the Foyle College, Form 1A. Burgess was at this side and Cook was the way. We were always paired together, just the alphabetic Roma things. So I sat with him. The thing I remember from that is that the day after Thomas Cook was buried, we went on a biology field trip to downhill or somewhere like that and somebody produced a newspaper and on the front of the newspaper was a picture of Andrew and David standing either side of their mother at the graveside and we're in a field trip and then the bastards went out and tried to kill his mother shortly after that that's cruel yeah. Because that's that's deliberately trying to heat the cruelty on the on the one particular She was shot in the Strand Road. She was. And then they took over the Slam Bar when the Slam Bar was about the size of this room. This room's not very big, boy. And they sat in there all afternoon and then they came out and they put fifty bullets on the car. Yeah. Shortened her leg. And it's amazing that she got away from it. Do those horrific incidents tribute to you having the scarf? The obvious answer to that would be yes. The obvious answer to that's yes, because again trying to be a young man and Derry at that time, and a young Protestant in Derry at that time, we used to go most Saturdays whenever I was a kid and play snooker in Tally and Henderson's factory. For some reason that was a safe place, I'm not entirely sure why, probably because it was close to the fountain. But big snooker, maybe it was because you could hide in the dark. And I love snooker. But when you came out of there and you used to come down uh, and you would stand at the top of John Street, you would hide around the corner with a wee step, sorry, that would bring you down from Carlisle Road to John Street and you would wait for the new Baldwin's bus to come around the bottom of the corner. And it was always a fast run to get yourself to that bus stop before the bus. But you could not be found to be standing at that bus stop. What would have happened if it, you were found? Well, you got a kicking. It wasn't that you would have got a kicking, you got a kicking. There, you know, there, there were fellas in Rahana State as well that would wait for us getting off the bus at Dunwood Park. And there would be a chase involved there as well, so you were getting chased every day coming off the bus. And all for a crimson blazer, the foil Monday college blazer. That was it, you were a prod and that was that. Sort of how times have changed. So all those things coming together, and was that, was that kind of reaction? I mean, that's where kind of the UVF scarf from. I mean, Bloody Sunday was a, was a stick to beat the Protestants around the head with. Regardless of what happened, those people dying was used as validation uh, and excuse and recruitment for the professional IRA had to do what they had to do and, and it excused whatever they did. And whenever it's, it's hard not to have the buttons pressed and those kind of reactionary instincts to come back to you because really the last time I remember being kind of overwhelmingly angry was the day that David Cameron apologised 
And the reason for that being was he stood up and he validated the treatment that was meted out to me, my family and my community in the city all that time because Bloody Sunday was used as a validation for it. And that made me angry. I actually didn't cry. I promised myself I wouldn't watch it in the television and I came in and Michelle was sitting at the the kitchen table and we had a wee portable mounted up in the corner and it was just on, it was just on all the time. And I just came in as Cameron started to talk and I foolishly turned my head to look at it and then couldn't pull myself away. You cried because of? Because of the anger that I felt at the fact that what he did was he got up and he apologised and validated the treatment which had been meted out to me in my community off the back of Bloody Sunday and what it had been used for. Was he not apologising to the families that the killings were unjustified and unjustifiable? Yeah, we know that and we've heard that and I'm sick hearing it. That's why I'm not saying the and I'll, make, I'll say it now, but I'll make a point of it, but I'm not saying it. I'm not saying those people were wrongly killed. I'm not saying that because they were. And I'm not validating that anymore. That's not the part of Bloody Sunday I'm talking about. Right? Those people were shot. That was wrong. Shouldn't have happened. They deserve justice. Okay? Yeah. So, park that. Bloody Sunday is another thing in my head. That isn't Bloody Sunday to me. Bloody Sunday is... Boys lined up to join the provost. Out shooting innocent Protestants, burning down Protestant businesses, blowing up Protestant businesses, threatening everybody, and the fact that I can't exist in my own town. That's what Bloody Sunday represents to me. Yeah. And what he did was he apologised for Bloody Sunday, and what he did was he validated that treatment that came off the back of it. Yeah. And that, makes, that still makes me angry, as you can see. I'm but hearing that now, Jonathan, if I, if I honestly respond to you as an interpretation of what he said, because for me, as someone who experienced Bloody Sunday, I also cried. But I was crying because the British state was saying the killings were unjustified and unjustifiable. I didn't hear Cameron or any of his, uh, the cabinet ministers or anyone saying the campaign that uh, led to the shooting of Tom Cook or Norman Duddy or Mr. Alford was justified. I didn't hear any of that. And in my heart, I had a need. I, I thought that this is unbelievable, that the Prime Minister is saying this. And if he had a said it in 72, or the then Prime Minister had said it, so much death would have been avoided, in my opinion. But I understand what you're saying, that what I hear you saying is that the provisional IRA said, Given what has happened on Bloody Sunday, we have no alternative. We must have this campaign of violence and we must do these things. And that led to the shooting of Mrs. Cook. I personally witnessed that shooting. Right. I was beside the car right. seconds after she was shot because I was turning up with you in the street. Let, let me kind of bring down the kind of one handy side sound bite. The thing has always been you put the gun in my hand. That to me is absolute and utter bullshit. Nobody ever put a gun in anybody's hand. When you go for a gun, you pick it up yourself. You cannot turn around and say, you made me do it. Hmm. No, you made yourself do it. Take your analysis that no one puts a gun in the other person's hand, and I agree with you. So then the same analysis will be true for the UVF. Oh, completely not really. As a teenager, somehow then what I'm, as the pop psychologist, is saying is, so these terrible events are happening, so who's going to help sort this? It must be the UVF. So when the UVF then kills someone, mm. do you then as a teenager rejoice? You say, ah, got them. 
I think you do. Anybody who sits at my age and says that the troubles didn't impact on them and affect them must have lived in the leafy suburbs of South Belfast or they're an absolute liar. There's no point pretending it didn't. When the troubles come to your school as regularly as they came to mine, it affected us all. It was a small school. We were in the West Bank of the Foyle. We were barricaded in. When you walked from the junior school to the senior school, you went in groups. The boys from Templemore School that I knew that I went to church, we travelled to school with iron bars in their bags because they had to fight their way home. And this was a daily thing. And this wasn't an opt-out thing for Protestants in this town. It, it was something that that, that that group of Protestant children went through. Because you had to get home. You had to go to your schools. Two of the three primary schools for Protestants in this town were sitting on the Northland Road where there were no Protestants anymore. But the problem is you can let that swallow you up or you can do something about it. The, the best thing that you can do about it is to make a choice to try and change things because I've always had a very strong Christian belief and even whenever that Christian belief was there and the UVF scarfs up in the bed, I know that those two things are diametric opposites. Those two things cannot exist together. How long did that scarf stay up? Ah, a couple of years. A couple of years? Probably, to be honest with you, it's probably still in a box somewhere. Do you know what I mean? I throw nothing out. Eventually I kind of got myself to the place where I couldn't condone my own behaviour. I, I knew it was being duplicitous, I knew it was being hypocritical. In terms, in of, terms your, of your Christianity? Yeah. You know, and, and Jesus said, you can be hot, you can be cold, but do not be lukewarm. I will spit you out of my mouth. So therefore, you can't serve those, those two types of masters. And Christ has always been my master. Do you know, and it's that, it's that type of thing where you, you can have no, you can, there, there, you can put nothing before him and his message. Yeah. Uh, you know, there will no other gods before me. Yeah. You know, so that you know, and that includes your children, your wife, your football club, your everything. Jesus Christ has to be the first and primary thing in your life, and His message has to be the first. And, and was that thing. was that your a thought or a belief that you had, or a faith you had that, as that, a teenager? That, that has always been something that that has lived in me. The, the word of the Bible, the the word of Jesus Christ. I I know it. I feel it. I can't really describe it because it's just there. I went through a born again process when I was about 26, which heightened that relationship and brought a lot of clarity after just muddling about there. You know, I mean, I expect my two boys to get through this. I will, I will drum them to church until they're through communion when they're 16, 17. Whenever they have made that communion, I have made my. I've fulfilled my commitment to the church in regards to my sons and then it's up to them to find their own conscience. I expect them to stray away from it. I expect drinking women to, to, to take hold of them in their 20s and like me in their 30s they'll find their way back to their church again. Because I know that that exists in them. I know they have that they have that faith at this stage. What happened for you? Um, you went to Foyle mm. and my understanding is you then went to Liverpool and did a degree and drama. Can you tell us a bit about that? And why that choice? I went out of Northern Ireland. I met a girl from Chantal. I went and met a Catholic girl. Was that a challenge? In the sense of the troubles and... I, I, I made a documentary for Channel 4. But part of the documentary was made for Channel 4 where, you know, they did come in and they, I think they'd sort of manipulated us. We were young lower sixth kids and had asked us to kind of define our, our politics as us very sophisticated questions for which we didn't have very sophisticated answers. So again, that just looks like bigotry. And 
that, that came out around that time and they made a follow-up. Which time is this now? It was around about 17. Yeah. Uh, I met this girl from Chantal or whatever. I was the summer of 89. Summer of love then? Well, well, Arsenal had won the league for the first time since 1971 in the May oh. and then I met this girl in the July. Fever pitch comes to mind. Completely not it. And that, that, that was that. And, 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 How you did know, you meet her, you know, given the summer, community division? Summer, my, my father ran a coal company and they wanted us to do a household survey and ask, knock on every door in the town. So they picked it from Foyle, from St. Collins, from Thornhill, kids to do this job during the summer. And she was one of them. And my father ran the coal company, so I was one of the others. I wanted to head to London. My, my love, as you know, was Arsenal Football Club. That's where I wanted to go. And then I met this girl, and she was a year younger than me. And she was talking about going to the north of England. So between one thing and another, referee and my parents' divorce, and having met this girl, and just just with a lot of turbulence. And, and then at that particular time in my life, I stayed for another year in the town and reset my levels and see the place in Manchester, I can place in Liverpool. And I was going to do a degree in something, English in something, English in psychology, great because then you be able to scope out people's brains and read them and do all these wonderful things. Little did I know that that's not what psychology is all about. And I took drama as a third option just because it was close to English and I was a kind of natural partner. I only got thrown out of Liverpool because of my poor first year final results in psychology and the drama department thought to keep me because it was more or less top of the year. Um, Were you then acting as well and had uh, you previously been acting? No, I never did anything like that until I got to university. I know what, you know, it's a, I mean, I am a Johnny come lately in terms of that. I came, the first time I did anything on the stage, it was 19. Whereas you see the kids, they make it, if you're not established now by the time you're 19, it's fairly pointless. And some, uh, performance media. First loves tend not to, to win through kind of a traditional aspect of being at university and having this world explode upon you and the relationship kind of went after about four years at, in the middle of our second year she and I parted. We broke up in the April, saw her in the summer, this is 93 and I haven't seen her since and I always remember the breakup because Arsenal just beaten Sheffield Wednesday in the cup and the in the Coca-Cola Cup final at Wembley, which I had been to with my father. And we were walking from Wembley down back into the West End, and we had steak and chips in a, in a restaurant in Piccadilly called Spolensky's Balloon, which is a steakhouse. And we were walking to Hagendas in Leicester Square to get an ice cream as dessert. And I says, I'll go and ring her. And I got into the phone box and rang, and someone else says, we're done. She'd come home for the Easter holidays, I'd stay because I was going to go to the match. And because of the money, I have to referee my mother and father. Because like, whenever I came home, just the whole thing just it was reset in terms of my mum and dad. That was a great time for her to break up because nothing could wreck my world tonight. I had just seen, that was the first time I had seen Arsenal won a trophy live. I was 21 years of age. I would love to know what she's doing. I would love to know to know that she's well and that she's happy. And again, all those all those people that I went to school with, foil collars with, and and, and Mike, you know, as a writer, I suppose a bit of a word smithing, and you think about it. And I I hope I'm the most miserable person I know, because if everybody else is as happy as me, they're doing very well. And I hope that all those people I went to foil with, that I had that bond with, that we kind of went through that shared experience with, are happy and content in their lives. And I hope that all those people I have known and lost touch with are happy and content in their lives. So I wish that happiness upon them. There's nothing to do about it.
people part in bad times and people drift away from each other and stuff like that but even though that kind of natural wearing of relationships occurs I hope that everybody's happy This is an episode of the Highwell Trust podcast or the Highwell Trust testimony series where you can catch up for free on our SoundCloud and Apple podcast pages episodes including the Liam McCluskey testimony session One night I think it was 19 paratroopers killed in Narrow Water. When we heard the news and the hitch blocks, we all cheered. That night, I prayed for their souls, and I thought, you can't be doing that. You can't cheer on one hand and pray for souls on the other hand. Uh, so it was all those contradictions going on. Then after much mental turmoil, I decided to cut ties with Republicanism and go the way of the Spirit. The Hollywell Stew 2 special. The Arabic Cafe serves fresh, healthy and affordable Arabic food. It's much more than a cafe. It's a unique meeting place that makes solidarity real. The grant, it'll make it possible for me to grow neighbourliness beyond the seven streets of my own neighbourhood where, where I live and work. So in the last seven years we've helped and supported, built the confidence, self-esteem and resilience of 800 kinship carers and almost 750 children and young people. Even if we didn't get any funding for this tonight, that it would be plants a seed where all our organisations should come on board and we could just try and create something beautiful. And the testimony of Maureen Wilkinson. Because so I thought of this week here, can deliver her baby without her partner, suffer the grief of losing her partner, lost her home because she couldn't go back, went back to school, got her nursing degree and is now nursing, I thought, are you mad? He said, and wallow in self-pity. And I thought, no, I'm not doing this. And that's another way I wanted to get back into my drama. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Highwell Trust or go to Apple Podcasts. Again, search for Highwell Trust. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co-funded by the Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Community Relations Council. Drama was your third choice subject. What was the journey that got you from there to where you are now? And how does that connect up with the UVF scarf or not connect up with the UVF scarf? Well, by that stage, I, I, I left that behind. Do you know what I mean? There, there, were, there, were, there were, whenever I started going out to be a Catholic in Derry, certain people just stopped talking to me. Certain people stopped talking to her. You know, and, and, and you find that you're existing on a kind of on a middle ground and, and sometimes it's not comfortable, sometimes you get threatened, sometimes you get slapped, you know. Uh, so you're telling me, Jonathan, that sometimes people threatened you from your own community? From both communities. And the other community? Uh, and sometimes people from either community slapped you? I remember one night coming out of Chantal and from nowhere a petrol bomb getting fired at the bottom of the car. Or I was thrown out the car and went off. I had to drive over it to get out. Now I was one of those kind of ones where somebody was thrown ten feet in front of me to make sure that it didn't hit the car by way of of this guy or just somebody was a bad shot. So therefore I'm assuming it was just a kind of a the kind of put the wind up me type thing. I don't take that personally. I'm not saying really stupid, but I don't take that kind of stuff personally. And then by that stage I'd I'd wanted out of Northern Ireland. I just was sick of Northern Ireland and all the, the crap where I left Northern Ireland ninety one. <sighs> determined not to come back finished my three years over there and did you then start to major in drama or well you had to take on two you dropped once one subject at the end of the first year so I of course had to drop psychology there's no point in me keeping it on so I kept on drama found the English didn't do that hot in the English did very well in the drama came out with a, a gentleman's degree of a 2-2 two, two. 
from the University of Liverpool in uh, 1994. And there's another wee moment which I remember the day of my graduation, dressed up in the suit and what have you. But all my friends went to the graduation with friends or parents. I didn't go to the graduation, I went and stood in the Philharmonic bar and waited for them to finish. And then we went on the kind of the... The razzle? Yeah, because nobody, I didn't have anybody to bring. Your parents didn't come? No. But again, people go, oh my God, that's a little bit. I don't take that personally. They were there, they, they had their own shit, they, they sort out. There's a great wisdom, arguably, in not taking things personally. A moment ago, you, you talked about being stupid, but there's a great wisdom in that. One of the, one of the maxims I try and live my life by is to learn from other people's mistakes as well as my own. You, you don't need to make that, you can make a particular mistake to realise that something is a stupid thing to do. So when I've seen other people do stupid things or react stupidly or take things the wrong way, I, I've tried to go, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. And, and that's, I've never assumed anything from anybody. So you've got your degree, uh, you don't go to the graduation, uh, you're in your suit, you're on the razzle with your friends who have been at the ceremony. And you come back to Northern Ireland then? No, I, stay, I, stayed, in, I stayed in Liverpool for six months, trying to make it work over there. A lot of the guys that I, the, the college that I went to was also teacher training college. A lot of the guys, whenever I went in the halls initially, it was first years and fourth years. So a lot of those fourth years became friends of mine. So they were out teaching and working. And we used to play football on a Sunday morning and, and travel the matches together and things like that back when I didn't go to matches with other people. So I finished in Liverpool and I went to live in a house with four of these guys who were out working as teachers. Uh, Northern Ireland people? No, 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 they were all from England. I applied for every job going. I applied for, oh my God, what was, what was the name of that Conservative Prime Minister? Ted Heath. I remember applying for a job to be a, a sort of like one of his office staff in Westminster. I didn't know what I it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, applying for Ted Heath. It was basically this ad in the paper which says, you know, MP requires personal assistant. I was applying for everything. I was. I remember another job. I remember applying for that one and I remember applying to be a guy to go and empty vending machines on the world. So going around emptying cigarette machines and pubs in the world and stuff like that. And one job I was not bad at for being overqualified and the other one I was not bad for being underqualified but I was going from the sublime to the ridiculous. Two of the schools that my friends taught at, I was teaching, I was coaching football at and I, I, I wrote them both their Christmas panto for both So you already had some you, some, you knew how to do that coming through the drama course? Well yeah, I mean the, the, one, of the, one of the modules in the in the degree was playwriting. So mm. there was this professional playwright whose name I can't, his first name was Paul, I can't remember his second name. But he, he was a writer and he came in and he took the course. And I wrote a play called Losing More Than We Ever Had that was set post the female revolution whenever men had to more or less live in the sewers because the women had taken over because they've been so badly treated and the point that I was trying to make was the fact that when people are looking for equality they're not actually looking for equality they're looking for revenge and I remember him saying I could top the class with that one I remember him saying he says you know anybody who scores over 70 I wish that I had written that so I get 74 so mm. I was the only one to get over 70 so you knew that there's something in you, you had some there's, talent? There's, there's, there seemed to be. I mean, I still wasn't chasing it too hard. A, a modest sort of response there, Mr. Burgess? Uh, well, there I, seemed I, to I, be. I, well, I wanted to be an actor because, of course, everybody did and everybody does. And, of course, I went through, I had that same stupid notion that everybody did because I came back at the Christmas time. I just couldn't sit in Liverpool in the door anymore. done for about seven months. 
you know, these guys would get up in the morning, go out to their work. I wouldn't see them doing maybe six at night, and I'm kind of sitting there watching. I remember watching things like one through over the cookies nest for the first time, you know, uh, and, and sort of all these big seminal movies of the 70s and 80s, which I didn't know anything about, but one of the guys now is a real movie buff. I just worked my way through his collection, while it's filling in applications for any job I get my hands on. Again, pre-computers, so I mean, it was handwriting and typewriters, like, you know, that was that. Came home, basically, metaphor to depack my bag and head off for the States. My grandmother married a GA during the Second World War, then back to the States after the war. My father was born out there, so he's American, so it kind of makes it a bit easier for me to get into the Americans. Came back, my mother persuaded me. There was a nice scheme job going on the playhouse, and she persuaded me to go for that. And I kind of thought, no, you know, somebody will have eminent qualifications. So I threw my hat in the ring, and lo and behold, I got the job. And I went to work on the 31st of January 1995 in the playhouse in a room with Helen Quigley and Dee Conan. And that was that. That was the start of the journey. And what I saw when I worked in there it was a really busy community hub of a theatre. And that's it. I worked on like 118 shows in that first 12 months. And that worked just on? Worked on? Produced? Just, no, no, no. Wrote? No, basically, shows were coming into the theatre. Uh, and we're getting performed around the theatre. We use the old yard outside. You'd be putting stuff on the, you know, on the stairwell. You'd be putting stuff for Halloween. You'd be putting shows in the stage. And I mean, you were turning shows over at such a rate of knots. You know, I mean, the amount of all nighters that I pulled in the playhouse between 1995 and 1996 was phenomenal. Because we'd have shows. There was one crowd called Level Five who came from England, and they always performed on there on a Sunday night. And I came to the place and performed on a Sunday night. And you'd maybe show on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and you'd have to strip the rig on a Saturday night after the, the other people had gone and be back with a, with a rig up in the air again, a lightning rig up in the air again for the, the Moonstone people, the level five people who were coming maybe at eight o'clock on Sunday morning. So, I mean, I spent nights in that theatre. I slept in that theatre. And you're on an A scheme, which is about £90 a week? £106.80 a week. £106.80? For a 30-hour week. And I had worked the hours for the year before I had done eight months in the place. And I just kept working. And the thing about it was people saw my work ethic. They saw I had a wee bit of knowledge. And what I learned from as I saw these different performers, because you're working in a studio theatre, you get to see everything. You know, it's not like you go into the forum and they open the door and everything comes off the truck. That's that's kind of but but when I see with you, you're you're getting the whole run of everything because you're having to rehang every light, you're having to rehang every curtain. You're, you know, you're you're everything is getting moved about. It's the hard way to do things, and you learn. And I learned, and I learned how to make theatre by watching other people do it and seeing again, not learning by their mistakes and not my own. When did you write your first piece? I didn't write my first piece. Well, after losing what we than we ever had, I. I, I tried to write a book. There's about six chapters of a of a book. Novel? Yeah, somewhere there's maybe two or three hours of stand-up comedy material knocking about. Uh, I wrote for a science fiction and fantasy magazine that went bust short stories, things like that. I was interested in uh, sort of occultish type stuff, horror. Uh, never started. Never really started writing plays then. But then I'm trying to think when the first one would have been. It was into the 2000s anyway before I wrote anything of note. I know that as an actor you performed in Dave Duggan's production about a, is it called About a Boy? 
The shopper and the boy. Shopper and the boy. Dave did this thing in the Peace Process trilogy. Darren Greer was the original boy. Uh, he then went to Rad or Land or somewhere, and I came in, and that would have been September '97. And the first performance I did there was the Dublin Theatre Fringe Festival. September 97, we performed in Trinity. That was another thing that kind of made you bulletproof because you'd have walked in the, say, your front room here on the junction, you know, with the, the glass and the windows and the people walking past outside and everybody asking all their business and performing to maybe 40 people, you know, and, you know, maybe stayed there singing the sash or whatever, like, and then Republican South Armagh, you know, with that, you know, belting out what David written because it was very challenging work. And people, people were very open and receptive to it at that stage. And still are. Um, he wrote them all about the police, which was a Greek tragedy style thing called Without the Walls, which which wasn't as good, in my opinion, because I think the style got in the way. A lot of mask work and stuff like that. And, and then uh, the, the best one he wrote was one called Waiting, which is about a man who, who goes to a bus stop every day where his wife's been blown up. And then one day at this bus stop, a woman turns up and it turns out that she's the one that planted the bomb that blew up the bus. And again, it was all this forum theatre, so you take it to a crisis point and you stop. And then the audience would come back in and try and finish the drama. It's a very good, it's a super process because what it does is they would come in, create suggestions, you'd improvise mm. them out, and people would see if they worked or not. So you would get that sense of, oh, it yeah, doesn't work, so. that's twee, that's bad, that's good. Augusta Bowal yes. method. Yes, yeah. theatre they oppressed and all that. Yeah. So that's that's what we did. Heard that was in New York with that, was in Liverpool with that, was in Edinburgh with that, all around Northern Ireland, North, South, East, and I was in Glen Cree. And I mean, I'm sitting from you now, maybe two feet. And I remember there's this bit at the end where, he, where the character I play is singing this song for his wife that he's never actually, he's never been able to sing the song through, and he breaks down in the middle of the song. And he, he finds it himself to finish the song for his wife. He's singing it in defiance of the woman who's there, whatever. And I'm sitting with Stephen Rastlick's mother and father, last probably soldier shot in Northern Ireland. As close to, I think I met them as close to me now as I am to you in this kind of natural light. I'm not hiding behind anything. And my characters getting the yards, and those, those two people are holding each other, the mother are holding each other, and weeping and crying. And I know that eight feet behind them, ten feet behind them, is an IRA bomber. Who will it justify? You know, because that's Glen Cree. Glen Cree's quite a special place. Strange and unusual, but still quite special. And we did that down there. And there was always a great kind of generosity of that. And again, that leads into the work that, that you and I do in terms of the workshops and creating these kind of vignettes. You know, it brings an objectivity to a theme. And once it does that, it allows people to explore it. And what they're doing is exploring the theme through the story. They're not exploring it through the personal circumstances of an individual who will react in a kind of very visceral way towards that. What we're doing is we're removing that aspect of it. So drama becomes, uh, creates or promotes that objectivity. Hmm. It becomes an enabler yes. of conversation and dialogue right. after the drama has been shown. Uh, or yeah, I mean, it, it gives. It's there to validate. It's, it's there to represent. It's there that you know can do all these things because there's there's people out there who are frightened to let their voice be heard but they still want it to be heard they just don't know how to do it and if they can't then that leads to greater frustration and if they have frustration that frustration will manifest itself in other ways people want to make a noise to draw attention to themselves they can do that with their mouth they can do that with a gun and what i do is i try and offer them a way to do that and i offer them the protection because 
whenever people come and say that's not right or you're wrong or you're making that up or that's propaganda they're coming at me they're not coming at that person behind me who can't maybe represent themselves. You're particularly interested Jonathan in the voice uh, I might even say the on-haired voice of people within Protestant working class community mm. and uh, a lot of your recent work that I know has sought to dramatize that story share that story yeah I mean I've done stuff with the band's community I've done stuff for the Protestants coming out of the West Bank I've done stuff for the RUC these are all people whose voices aren't heard there's a lot of preconceptions and misconceptions within the Catholic nationalist community regarding Protestants I remember sitting in the playhouse a couple of years in mid-90s we're talking here and this beautiful wonderful woman who I still see today and she's very caring and, and she's very sort of She's a very loving woman, a woman in the world who projects all that kind of stuff on there. I'll not mention her name, but her turn around going, You don't believe in the Virgin Mary, sure you don't? And I kind of going, Well, of course we do. How else was Jesus born? Fundamental misconceptions. And it's not the fault of the person who has the misconceptions, it's the fault of the person who will not inform them. And I see that as my community. My community would rather huff and sit in the corner sometimes and actually make their point but what people sometimes feel is that they don't have the vocabulary and that they won't reach for it or they can't reach for it that it's too complex and it is very complex the Protestant culture is a is a fragmented beast it is the nature of it that is what Protestants are about they are about self-sufficiency self-reliance self-belief that doesn't come together to create a kind of community cohesiveness not only if you have the Catholic community which is Catholic Church and regardless of whether you believe in the church or not, the Catholic Church still sits at the centre of that community. And at some stage, you know, people have fed into it in those communities. The Catholic Church is now fundamentally a cultural tradition in Ireland as opposed to a church, which people are still connecting. And I think the GAA has probably surpassed it in terms of these kind of community hubs. But it's still this kind of central thing which is there. Whereas if you walk down Carlisle Road, you'll see four different types of Protestants in terms of churches. So therefore, you know, you've dropped, you've dropped the stone in the pond already, and I think it's rappled out the scattered yeah, You walk down Carly Road, I know there's the Methodist Church, there's the Salvation Army, there's Carly Road Presbyterian Church. Hmm. And, and you have the Baptist around the corner, and you have the cornerstone on the forum. And you have people coming from St. Colin's Cathedral all of a Sunday. Yes. Yeah. But you used the term there just a moment ago, my community. And that seems to be in particular Protestant working class community, even though my perception would be that you come from the middle class. And they also know and enjoy. Sometimes you greet me and say, how's Brother Baker today? Mm -hmm. Is there a sense of a longing for community as well? Or is that the I, psychologist I, I, going I, I, around? No, I mean, there's times I of the Catholic community very envious of it. And uh, what are you envious of? The, 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 there seems to be a collectiveness, which is there. And there does seem to be a cohesiveness which is there and maybe that's just the way it seems superficially maybe when you get on it that's not the way it is but that just isn't there within the Protestant community it's much more fragmented but it is still a community and when i speak of community i speak more of the collective voice and the shared experiences so even though there's fragmentation there's shared experiences for example we as in the Protestant community may a shared experience might be we feel under attack from the provisional IRA as a community, whether you're Methodist or Salvation Army or Church of Ireland. That's that kind of pro-union align themselves along the constitutional lines, you know. I see the working class community as being uh, abandoned, and I don't think that's right. Abandoned by whom? Well, by their own people, by by, by biggest... The leadership? Yeah, yeah, the thing about it is, middle-new Protestants, 
get up, get middle class, and get as far away from the working class community as you possibly can. And I think that's wrong. As, a, as somebody who's going in and offering a very singular service within the Protestant community, I see a lot of people who are very, I don't want to use the term grateful, appreciative, and glad that somebody who can tell a story on their behalf is willing to come in and tell it on their behalf. Not to come in and paint the world beige because that's the way community relations want it, but to come in and tell the story for them. Yeah. And do that single identity thing, which was never done for them. Never done. Do you ever think, Jonathan, that I have almost typecast myself now as the playwright of the Protestant community or the playwright of the Protestant working class community? I think other people have done that. People uh, are doing that to you? Yeah. Uh, and that's people they don't know what. As, as I keep telling people, I worked in five bloody Sunday shows before I did any one about my, my own community. Nobody was sort of banging the door down the ends, you know what I mean? Like, uh, there was there was various things that I did for various companies. I just worked. You know, a baker sells baps, he sells them to anybody. A theatre maker makes theatre for anybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way you make a living. And I, and I worked in five different bloody what, what, what shows were they? They were, they were com- there was community theatre shows, a couple that Dave Duggan did, there was there was one which was a, a private commission as well, which was for the families alone, which was to do with them going to England for the first time to hear testimony in London and the saddle. things like that, yeah, stuff that was this difficult. I was there hired gun, basically go in, do your job, create the drama. If you're doing your work, you, you don't have to believe their message. And then when I started telling the message that I wanted to tell, Stuff about the, the problems coming out of the West Bank, stuff about the RUC becoming the PSNA, stuff about the, the flute bands. The thing was, those stories were coming out for the first time. You're, you'll always get new stories coming out about Bloody Sunday, you always get new pieces. I mean, God, how many films have there been recently? How many stage plays have there been recently uh, over the last 20 years dealing with that? But how many plays have there been dealing with the exodus of the problems people out of the West Bank? There's been one. How many have dealt with? Loyalist bands, one. How many have dealt with the RUC and the PSNI? One. So therefore, it brings attention to that, and then people have a disproportionate perspective of it. When you reflect on that work you've done, say Crows on the Wire, or when you reflect on the Exodus or the Exide work, what is the thing that most warms your heart in terms of feedback that you've received from audience members? or from members of the community who might not have even seen the plays but heard about them? There has been a collective response, muted, that I have done the right thing and I have represented that story well. The the Exodus one in particular, down at the Butter Island Tesco, one night, this wee man, he's sitting in the corner of me, he's kind of looking at me and he sails up to me, yeah boy Burgess. Well done with the place, I'm well done. Scuttles off. Do you know what I mean? The fact that East Bank Protestant Boys Flute Band went out collectively and put leaflets through 3,000 houses in the Waterside Theatre to let people know that play was on in the millennium for The Exodus play? The Exodus play. But then the bitter irony of the fact that there's about 50 in that band and I offered them all two tickets to come and see the show. I think 17 tickets were taken up out of them. The fact that a wee woman sitting in the Millennium Forum that night that the show was on. Somebody behind this was reported to me by a third party who was sitting behind them. Republican loudly intoned that ah, that stuff there never happened. And the wee woman turned around with tears in her eyes and says, yes, it did happen. She, she, she corrected him. The play gave her, I think, the power to do that. Mm. 
And why does that matter to you, Jonathan? Why because, is that because, important? because those voices are mute. Yeah. And those voices have not contributed. So a, a junior bandsman putting a leaflet through a door in Irish to, to tell people about my play is a communication. It's not. It's the, we're taking the muteness out of this. A wee woman turning around and, and, and saying, no, that's not how it was. Contradicting that perspective is, is taking the mute out of it. The wee man sidling up to me and saying, talking in my ear, is taking the mute out of it. Well, eventually we find a voice. They're not using it, but they know it's there. So it's time they turn it up. I don't like this kind of he said, she said shit and this kind of tit for tat almost. Tit for tat theatre? Tit for tat theatre. Yeah. I'm just telling stories that have never been told. Yeah. When people are doing things, I mean, I, people are now writing chapters on me and their thesis and things like that. And, you know, and it's not rocket science. I'm just, I'm just laying it out there. And the great thing is I can access those communities. Mm. Because the, the more you do it, people have a belief in you. Uh, you've got a track record that enabled you to come through the door and be trusted. Because they would have seen me on the street as a young fella at the 12th. They know I'm in Carlisle Road Church every Sunday morning. They know where I come from. I'm not being imposed on. You're also a member of the Apprentice Boys. I'm a member of the Apprentice Boys. As you look forward, Jonathan, now to current and future pieces of work, have you any thoughts on that? I want to do stuff which looks at anti-racism. I despise racism. You might as well follow it with something about the colour of their shoes or the colour of their skin. It's anti-British. I want to do stuff uh, which is Christian. I want to write a theatre and education show about Christianity. And I also want to correct the way remembrance is used in society. You talked earlier about remembrance being a form of revenge. Yeah, I, I don't. That's that shouldn't. It's not a validation for other for other things. Remembrance is in itself. It's a, it's a dead act. You know, it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't inspire people onto other feats. It, it's a it's a moment of reflection and it's a point of resetting the balances. And if it's to inspire people, it's to inspire people away from war as opposed to inspire them towards it. Next week on the Hollywell Testimony Series, our interviewee today is Sean O'Donnell. Sean works with Extern. Sean talks about growing up in Strathfoyle. It was almost that they came out to defence of him that was undefensible. You know, this young boy getting beat up and stuff like that and thrown back at the house. And that issue alone was the thing that resonated amongst the whole community. We weren't rebelling for years of, of torment or anything like that. It was just this one incident that happened that for some reason the whole community felt that, no, do you know what, we all disagree with that. Missed an episode? Then why don't you search for all our podcasts on our SoundCloud.com page. Just search for Hollywell Trust. Or on Apple Podcasts, search for Hollywell Trust. I'd like to thank you, Jonathan, for that. That's great. And I would also need to thank our funders, namely the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Derry and Strabane District Council, and the Community Relations Council. Thank you all, and thank you, Jonathan. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.